Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by me, for we don't have an ad, right, for the second episode of the week. Um, we did have an ad for the first episode of the week, which was with Neil Ferguson, which many people on Twitter are saying, and unlike certain uh, leaders of the second branch of government who often say, many people are saying, you can actually go look it up and, it, and have it actually verified, many people are saying was the best episode of this podcast ever. I'm not sure I agree with that. I thought it was really good, but I have my own favorites. But regardless, one thing is crystal clear to all sentient life forms and Paul Krugman is that there's an enormous amount of pressure on our next guest to live up to the expectations of the first one. And so we have my new colleague, um, uh, who we, uh, we, the American Enterprise Institute poached from our beloved sister think tank, the Hoover Institution. He's also the uh, assistant pre- professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, which they had to change the name of for reasons we'll get into in a second when they first proposed it. Um, and he is now like, uh, at, for AI purposes, he's our like law and constitution guy. And that is Adam White. Adam, welcome aboard. Great to be here. So didn't they have to like, originally, wasn't it going to be like, like the acronym for the law school was going to be some weird thing if they did it in some different way? Yeah, it was going to be, uh, Antonin Scalia School of Law. And I'll let you do the math on the acronym for that one. Um, I'll, I'll let the listeners do it. Yeah. Antonin Scalia School, School of Law. Law. Okay. Yeah. So. Which I honestly, I think Scalia would have liked the joke. Yeah. Um, I think it would have amused him and it definitely amuses us. Um, so since no one at a, and I apologize to listeners if you hear the sniffles, I try not to call attention to them, but uh, I have something of a, either a weird allergy attack. When I came back from parts of the country that had actually had clean, dry air, and then I came back to D.C., it was like Luke Skywalker going to the Dagobah system to find uh, Yoda, and I just got all sort of swampy, um, which is fitting. Um, since no one in their wisdom at AEI chose to consult me about whether or not to hire this guy, I figured I would just sort of do this and sort of take him through the paces of if I got to interview him, do some law stuff. And and apologies to Ilya Shapiro, who thinks that he has a monopoly on Law and Constitution stuff for the Remnant podcast. Libertarians are pretty authoritarian that way. They really are. I mean, yeah. the, the, some of my best friends are libertarians, but they can be needy. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Uh, maybe that's a topic for a future podcast. Anyway, all right. So, uh, first of all, where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to uh, law school? What's what's your main focus? All of this kind of stuff. I mean, I know the answers to some sure. of these things, but we're just table setting here. Sure. Well, I, uh, I grew up in eastern Iowa. Uh, if you've seen the movie Field of Dreams, you've seen uh-huh. where I'm from. Uh-huh. Um, my family has been there for generations. I uh, went to the University of Iowa, uh, which is a great place to go to school, a great place to, to meet a wife. Um, Liz and I met there, moved out east to Boston. I went to a small law school outside of Boston. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Harvard Law School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they, they always make it sound like they're reluctant to drop the H-bomb and then yeah. they drop it. But anyway, go on. Um, uh, where I learned to be a conservative just by spending three years around progressives, uh-huh. uh, the progressives who are really going to run everything. Um, so you weren't that conservative when you went in? You know, I, in high school, had been a um, National Review and Reason reading uh-huh. conservative. Um, actually, in college, uh, interned in the Clinton West Wing. Um, the first day of my internship was the first day of the Senate impeachment trial. Nice. And that was an interesting place to spend uh, six months. Um, came back, came to law school sort of agnostic. Uh-huh. Um, it 
being in D.C. didn't make me like um, progressives anymore, but it made me dislike conservatives a little bit uh-huh. um, based on the impeachment trial. Got to law school pretty agnostic, um, but like I said, you spend three years around progressives who – I mean, Harvard Law School is in many ways, it's a master's degree in social engineering um, and and really sort of reminded me, especially on some, some of the cultural issues, what really mattered. Um, so came down to D.C., clerked for a great federal judge for a year and then practiced law for about a decade. Uh-huh. Practiced uh, regulatory issues, energy infrastructure – um, pretty exciting stuff. Actually, branded costs, baby. Yeah. You know, you know, it's fun. I used to say I had the most interesting uh, job in energy law, which sounds like damning by faint praise. Uh-huh. But I was dealing with things like the dormant commerce clause, preemption. Uh-huh. You know, actually, what is the role of the federal government and the states in these big nationwide or international energy infrastructure projects? Okay, let's start with the eggheadery. Uh, yeah. You said dormant commerce clause. What yeah. that, what's that? Sure. Well, the Constitution gives uh, Congress the power to regulate commerce among the states, interstate commerce. And going back about, well, 200 years, um, the theory has been that that not only gives power to Congress, it also implicitly takes power away from the states, that the states are prohibited from regulating interstate commerce or doing things that would significantly burden interstate commerce. Um so, for example, um, if ma- if we want to build an energy project in Massachusetts that's going to ship natural gas, you know, out throughout the states and bring tankers full of liquefied natural gas overseas, can Massachusetts just pass a law saying, no, not in our backyard? And our theory was no. Mm-hmm. Our theory was, well, we won, so that was nice. And so the dormant part is what? Dormant means that it's it's um, it's unspoken. Uh-huh. It's, it's, um, it's not an active power that Congress asserts. It's that the Constitution itself tacitly prohibits the states from gotcha. doing something. So so just to close the loop, uh, I went on to work with a great lawyer in Washington, C. Boyden Gray from mm-hmm. the White House Counsel. Uh, I was having a good time at my old firm. And he said, hey, how would you like to sue the Obama administration over and over again? I said, that sounds kind of nice. I uh, did that for a few years and then wound up in uh, think tankery and mm-hmm. now legal academia. There you go. Okay. Um, so are you a originalist? Original understanding, original intent, public understanding, and incorporate within your answer the under what these ter- the differences between these terms are. Yeah, sure. I'm an originalist, um, although there are some important veins. We've already kicked the libertarians once, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, an originalist is somebody who believes that the Constitution should be um, interpreted in accordance with its original meaning. Now, originally, the original originalism in the 1980s, they talked about original intent. What did the framers intend when they passed the Constitution? But the thing is, with the Constitution, like any other law, we're not really bound by the thoughts that people had in their head when they wrote a law. We're bound by what the law says. Mm -hmm. And so modern originalism, I think the the mainstream of, of originalism now is, what was the reasonably understood meaning of the words when they were passed into law? Whether it's the Constitution, a statute, a later constitutional amendment, anything. That's where I am. I think that's where most conservatives are these days. The really interesting debate within sort of the conservative legal family right now is between the folks who are for, who are for what we call judicial engagement, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a, a politically correct way of saying judicial activism. Right. right? We want judges to really assert themselves, strike down a lot of laws. This is the George Will School now, It's right? now the George Will School. It's, it's really the school of not just our friend Ilya Shapiro, also my friend and former teacher uh, Randy Barnett mm-hmm. of Georgetown – who make very forceful arguments that the courts need to look very skeptically on laws passed by Congress and by the states. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not there. 
I'm on the other side of the argument, which is more of a judicial restraint school, mm-hmm. that, that courts, while they should strike down unconstitutional laws, they should give the benefit of the doubt, where there is a doubt, to um, the political process. I'm not saying sort of mindlessly defer to political branches, but, you know, the tie goes to the runner, uh, the runner being democracy, and that courts should be careful when they strike down laws. Um, so is there anybody left of prominence or influence who's still an old school intent guy versus understanding guy? No, not really. I mean, academics can debate all sorts of things, and there are really esoteric arguments in legal academia over the difference between, say, legal interpretation and legal construction mm. and intent and meaning. But no, honestly, I think we've gotten really past that. But it's, I think it's useful to circle back to that debate and say that, you know, yeah, we aren't bound by intent, but we do need to think seriously about what the framers intended because not just because they wrote the law, but because they are wise and eloquent statesmen mm-hmm. um, in some ways, you know, when you read the Federalist or the Anti-Federalist papers, thinking through a lot of these things at a much more deeper, uh, a much deeper, um, I think, an, an eloquent level than a lot of our politics today. And so we ought to take seriously the values that that sort of energize their constitutional debates. Well, also, it just seems to me like the, I, I think the public are the the meaning or public understanding of what the laws meant at the time is the better way to go, but also strikes me as the best way to get to understanding that would be to understand what or the intent of the guy who wrote it was, right? So it's not like these are either-or things either. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the reasons why conservatives are a little squeamish when you say intent is for a long time, statutes were interpreted by what we call legislative intent. Right. Right. So judges, including the Supreme Court justices, they really wouldn't pay much attention to what the law says. They'd say, well, what did Congress say? What was in the congressional reports? What was in the debates? And that's really no way to run a country because what Congress votes on is the law. Mm -hmm. And so conservatives have always sort of shied away from intent-focused arguments. But I I, I would phrase it not just in terms of intent, but in terms of constitutional values. Mm-hmm. And I really think that it's important. And one of the things I'll be doing here at AEI uh, is, is really urging constitutional thinkers to think more about the values that undergirded constitutionalism. Um, because I think only when we understand those things can we really understand the meaning of the words. Um, okay, so uh, let's just go through my greatest hits here. Yeah. Are the branches co-equal? Careful, careful. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like um it's kind of like saying um uh every country is exceptional. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Um I I'd say they're it's it's hard to call them co-equal because they're just different, right? It's like is an apple co-equal to an orange. Um they're just fundamentally different powers of government. And I think without a doubt the first branch in our constitution, the legislative branch, was intended in most ways to take the lead in policy making. But not completely. The, for, the framers understood the president would be very powerful and that he would sort of as an energetic executive be able to take the lead. But yeah, I guess my answer to your question is, is an apple co-equal to an orange? Mm-hmm. Just two totally different things. Okay. You'll get at best partial credit for that on the Remnant po- Podcast scorecard. Okay. The correct answer um, in the grand school of uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher and uh, our friend Luke Thompson. Do you know Luke? Yeah. We should get you guys in a room. Uh, uh, is that Congress is supreme. And um, the word – this co-equal branch is a government thing. Our understanding is that this was smuggled in by the Nixon administration as a way to fend off impeachment. Yeah. And if you go back and you look at the Federalist Papers, 
the word co-equal does show up. Yeah. And also your boss and my boss now too, Yuval Levin, is, with, is on my side of these yeah. things. So, you know. Can we argue about this for a minute then? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'd say, again, we're comparing two different things. Going back to the beginning, it was always understood that the president would have s- some significant advantages. There's uh-huh. just one president. He can move faster. He's, uh, he speaks on behalf of the, the entire country in a way that an individual congressman doesn't. Congress, I mean, the president has specific powers in the Constitution in terms of convening Congress um, when he needs to. Um, the framers, especially Hamilton, understood the president would be swifter than Congress. Congress, though, is heavier in a way than the mm-hmm. president, right? Congress passes laws the president doesn't. Congress debates things and digests uh, nationwide debates into sort of the compromises of policy. Um, and so uh, I'd say the president is swift, but Congress is strong. Um, right. Tugboat versus speedboat kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But Congress also has – Congress also has powers. Yeah. And um, if you were going to do what I used to love when I was a kid is they would have these special issues where they would rank the different superheroes by strength and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. If you did a – Congress versus presidency thing, you wouldn't dispute that the that as intended or as originally set up, yeah. Congress probably had more power, but it was slower. I get all that. That's a good way to think about it. But it writes the laws, it creates all the courts, but the Supreme Court, it has the power over trade till it gave it away like a giant baby. Congress can meddle in the other branches, the other managers can't meddle in it. Yeah. Um, you can go down a very long list of things. And just to finish my point, it was, but the co-equal thing, the word co-equal does appear in the Federalist Papers, but it's always about either how the House is co-equal to the Senate or how the federal government is co-equal to the states. There's no talk about how the presidency is co-equal. First of all, co- isn't co-equal just freaking redundant? <laughs> I mean, right, who right. says co-equal? Right. That's the point. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> two plus two is co-equal to four? No one says that. Two plus two and four are co-equal. That's right. It yeah. just makes no sense yeah. to me. Um, yeah. Ironically, it's because they feared the power of the legislature mm. that they hobbled it in some ways. Right. Okay. Right. Maybe and maybe we regret some of those things. Now I don't think we do, but it. I mean, part of the reason why we have a supreme president is that the president, his swiftness, his energy has only been accentuated by time. But at the same time, the powers of Congress, which were in some ways hobbled by the framers, have grown weaker over time. Right. But when you say we have a supreme president, you're just making an observation about yes. the current state of play. This is not a normative or value. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm. Yeah, let's be very clear here. I'm not some sort of imperial presidency. And I think the greatest problem in our constitutional governance right now is the fact that Congress is so deformed and in many ways it's put itself in a, in a, a cul-de-sac that's hard to get out of on its own. Okay. So another bugaboo of mine. I'm going to keep asking qualified guests this question until I get the answer I want. Okay. I'm not saying I'm until I get the right answer. I just the answer I want. Are you going to ask about Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. again? I am. Please don't. <laughs> no. Why I'm are you obsessed. doing this? I, uh, I've been obsessed with this for over a decade. You've asked this of Ilya every time he's been on. And I you understand. Keep, you keep th- and eventually he'll give me the answer I want or he'll just stop coming on. All right. Uh, I'm disappearing now. I just can't believe you're doing this again. Um, I'm going to start asking. He actually left. That was amazing. <laughs> he, he, he actually just vaporized. <laughs> um, so Oliver Wendell Holmes, champion of judicial restraint, right? You know, famous like if the American people want to go to hell, I should help them. With all it's, that it's my job, he said. Right. If the progressives weren't running the show everywhere across the board, do you think 
he would have had that same philosophy? Or was he basically practicing a judicial philosophy that said, I like what these guys are doing. I'll stay out of the way. No, I think it's pretty well established. Holmes didn't necessarily like what the progressives were doing. I don't know. He was contrarian in some ways, and sometimes he kind of relished, you know, sticking a thumb in the eye of people. But he wasn't really a progressive. Progressives made him a progressive champion. Um, I think because they let him do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. I think that his he he came to his legal uh, his legal theories as as right or wrong or grotesque as they were. He came about them honestly, mm-hmm. um, and I think he probably would have been the same way if the political valence was turned. Um, uh, but he certainly did sort of relish some of his uglier moments, including the the Buck v. Bell case. And so right. on. I just a few months ago reviewed a really fascinating new biography of Holmes uh-huh. um, for the Wall Street Journal. Great book by Stephen Budiansky, I think is his name. Um, and there's there's you know Holmes is a really horrific figure in American history. Mm-hmm. There's he has some ad, some interesting and admirable and likable qualities. He's smart. Uh, <laughs> he was smart. He was a good writer. I, th- I think he had a, his, a skepticism that was useful, but I think his his constitutional approach bordering on nihilism mm-hmm. um, was was just antithetical to any sense of American constitutionalism. Okay. Well, you'll get partial credit on this because you at least say he's a monster, and that's that's important. What was what's 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 the answer <laughs> you were looking for? Well, it's just that it's been a while since I I, I did major deep dives into Holmes and. His eugenics was deeply held. You know, people right. want to point to Buck v. Bell, but there were these other things, these correspondence he has with Sidney Webb, mm-hmm. where he really talks about how the essence of reform is through eugenic stuff, and that's what's really important. Yeah. And and he has the stuff where he it, – it's his line. I mean, it's been so long since I've had to talk about this, but uh, the – he takes these pot shots at Herbert Spencer. Right, right. right? The social Constitution statics. didn't enact uh, Herbert Spencer's social statics. Right. And so her, for listeners who don't know, Herbert Spencer is one of the – he's one of the foundational figures of um, essentially American libertarianism to put a uh, point on it. Uh, and do not get me started on social Darwinism. He was not a social Darwinist. Okay. Um, and people who use the phrase social Darwinism, nine out of ten of them don't – Ten of them don't know what it means, but he was a real libertarian and he was a real limited government guy. And Holmes seemed to have no problem with statism, qua statism, when when it met his policy aims and when the legislatures wanted to do things that were in the sort of libertarian or small government kind of way, he was happy to bigfoot over them, which was not judicial restraint. Mm. That's my recollection of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think as um, oh, what's the famous book, The Metaphys- Metaphysical Club by Louis Menon? Yeah. Like good book. It's a great book. Yeah, I read it in um, read it in law school, and he said something like the Civil War not only took away Holmes's belief in abolitionism, it took away his belief in beliefs. Right. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think that his his immense skepticism, and then his intellectual circles with Charles uh, uh, Peirce, mm-hmm. and um, bonus points for pronouncing it correct. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, who are the others? I guess uh, William James and and the others he, that he right. palled around with. You know, they were just they were they were they were skeptics in sort of an exhilarating post Civil War way, mm-hmm. um, and it really carried with him. What was interesting was that the younger generation of judges and lawyers that came up with him, most famously Learned Hand, um, best name of any judge in American history, best name. That's exactly right. And you know, co-founder of the New Republic, and actually, if I remember correctly, Hand was the one who connected Herb Crowley with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. That's right. So he um, he's in the middle of all this. 
Hand really believed the judicial restraint stuff. He gets to the mid-20th century around the time of Brown versus Board of Education. And the left, liberals, progressives, they do this big split, a big generational split between the people who stick with judicial, total judicial restraint and the ones who say, wait, no, actually we do need the court to intervene in things like Brown v. Board of Education. Mm. And Hand sort of famously gives a lecture saying that, that the, you know, the, the the Brown v. Board approach is just unjustifiable however much you believe in the merits of the policy. Mm. Um, it would have been interesting to see what Holmes would have done at a time like that if he had been one of the younger generation of judicial restraint folks and actually was confronted with Brown versus Board of Education. We'll never know. Yeah. So one of my obsessions, I talked about this in the podcast with uh, Russ Roberts a bit. Um, I hate pragmatism. Uh, philosophical pragmatism, which is what the metaphysical club is really about, right? right? And pragmatism is one of the few words, and this point I first learned in an AI book about the Supreme Court where the, the chapter it was edited, by, I think, by Alan Bloom, about, and the, it was a chapter about pra- legal pragmatism. Mm-hmm. And uh, But pragmatism is one of the very few words that has a positive connotation in its non-philosophical sense that the philo- the philosophical philosophical branch gets to mooch off of right no, no one says look we got to figure out what kind of car to get let's be existential about this right, right? you know no one right. says let's be nihilistic about this right, right, right. but when you say we well, yeah, let's be pragmatic about this it just means being reasonable right and that's not what philosophical pragmatism was um, and you mentioned Charles Peirce. You know, Charles Peirce eventually abandoned the label pragmatism for or pragmaticism. That's right, because right. he, he had to come up with something less euphonious. Right. His famous line was, "He wanted to come up with a word so ugly that he wouldn't have to worry about someone stealing it." <laughs> um, and my argument about pragmatism dovetails with my argument about Holmes in the sense that what pragmatism really was, and the way the progressives of that era used it, was as a and I think Louis Menon uses the phrase, the pragmatist razor. It was really a weapon to delegitimize all other philosophical schools mm-hmm. while pretending that you didn't have a philosophical school of your own when in fact you did. Right. It's like people who today say, I'm not an ideologue. I'm just for whatever works. Right. Exactly. And that that makes me want to flip the safety on my rifle. I hate that. Uh, my my wildly underrated book, the Tyranny Clichés, I write about this at great length. Um so okay, so we've we've covered we've covered some of that. I'm I'm I'm. This is all going through the process of figuring out whether I would have hired you if if you know I was in charge of these things or if someone asked my opinion. We hear all the time, and I say it all the time, and I think it's almost surely true that most of Trump's judicial appointments are pretty good from our perspective, from a conservative perspective. Tremendous. Are there any clunkers? Because you never hear about them. Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't think there have been any real clunkers. I guess it depends on. What your standard is. Uh-huh. I mean, if you want every single nominee to be a total home run, somebody who uh, is is a, you know committed originalist and eloquent spokesman for it, then yeah, of course, not all of them are. He's appointed a lot of judges, and anytime you appoint judges, you're going to have people that are some compromise picks um, negotiating with local senators. Um, there's going to be some that are sort of supported by the local chamber of commerce or whoever. I would say. Um, and I've, as as you know, I've been a, a vocal critic of candidate and now President Trump on all the stuff he he really gets wrong, which is a lot. Um, but I'll say on the judges, this is just a total home run, mm-hmm. and um, it's been really incredible. A lot of folk, people focus on Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and they deserve a lot of focus, obviously. But just what he's done with the circuit courts of appeals, just these incredible, incredible people. 
Um, some of them, friends of mine I've known for a long time, people I admire. Uh, one guy, uh, Andy Oldham, was appointed to the federal circuit down in Texas, the Fifth Circuit. I knew this guy in law school. And the first time I met him, I thought this guy's going to be a judge, maybe a Supreme Court justice. Mm. Now he might actually someday be a Supreme Court justice. And he's not alone in terms of just the great quality of judges that President Trump has put on. It's going to not only is it going to create a bench for future Supreme Court nominees, but also having this quality of judges at the intermediate level is really going to improve the way that these issues are sort of digested, chewed on, um, another word we often use in Supreme Court practice, percolating mm-hmm. through the circuit courts. It's really going to, I think, affect the quality of the arguments as they get to the Supreme Court itself. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be just a, a real incredible legacy of, of the of President Trump. So you're a big Federal Society guy, right? I love the Federal Society, yeah. And um, no, but you're involved in it and you do events with them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, they, I, I speak to chapters and, and, and sometimes at national events and so on. And you're part of this broader conversation about this whole thing. What is your sense of President Trump's own actual engagement in this process? Or is this purely Leonard Leo and the legal shop at the White House Council or the Justice Department doing this? I don't know. I, I'm pretty far removed from all that. I've never had any pardon it. I think that President Trump understood the political importance mm-hmm. of it. I, I do think that the creation of a list is going to be a, a an important sort of institution yeah. in our politics. It has that feel, doesn't it? That, like the, the candidates are going to do this from now on, have yeah. a slate of judges? At least candidates on the conservative side. Yeah. We'll, see, we'll see what happens actually with the Democrats. I'll say I think it's in many ways a good thing. There are some there are some worries about this, right? Do you want judges campaigning to be on the list? Right. 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 Um, it's going to get a little – I don't know. I think it's a. It's going to be an important institution, but one that we're going to have to really think about over time. So President Trump understood the political weight of the issue. Um, as far as I can tell from afar, he largely sort of delegated it to Don McGahn mm-hmm. and the White House Counsel's Office. At the traitor Don McGahn. Traitor Don McGahn. When they, remember they were attacking Don McGahn? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> in the long run, we're all traitors, I guess, with this, with this president. But, um, you know, it used to be that this stuff was run out of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy. Right. And shifting it into the White House Counsel's Office is also, I think, another important um, development. And this uh, this White House uh, with Don McGahn and, and Rob Luther and others um, just did a tremendous job picking judges. All right. So on the pressing issue, it's not, it's no longer pressing. Do you think uh, – but how to put this? There are a bunch of different ways to go at this. First of all, do you think a sitting president can be indicted? Forget – this is not necessarily about Trump or anything Trump has done, just in, in, in theory. No. Okay. I mean, I get – it depends. It's kind of like, um, do you believe in baptism? Well, I've seen it done. I mean, I suppose a U.S. attorney could file an indictment against uh-huh. the president. I mean, that's possible. But I think the notion of a U.S. attorney having the authority to do so, um, it cuts against just the basic premise of our Constitution, which is that the U.S. attorneys um, are answered to the attorney general who answers to the president. Um, and I think that the, the Office of Legal Counsel memo that spelled out why a president couldn't be indicted – I think it's basically – it persuades me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so if the president of the United States went on – let's not make this about Trump. So not Fifth Avenue. Right. Let's say Lexington Avenue <laughs> and shot somebody <laughs> and shot a bunch of people. Right. Presumably no federal indictments of him. Yeah. Right. But a state – 
Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought we were talking about federal. That's right. There, so it's an interesting question about whether a state a state could. Possibly... Well, we were talking about federal, but now we're making it. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a that's a much more open question. Uh-huh. Um, it's not an easy question. I mean, there is it is interesting about the power of the federal the states. I mean, the, the states can't destroy a bank in the United States. Can the state? Can the states destroy a presidency? Uh-huh. Um, um, what Marshall said: the power to tax is the power to destroy. I suppose the power to indict is the power to destroy as well. But no, it's, I think that's a much more open question about whether a, a, a state could. I mean, if the president in his own, you know, his own car, you know, double parked uh-huh. right for for a couple hours, could he get a parking ticket um, if he was in Virginia? I suppose so. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but clearly, if the president shot someone in the middle of Lexington Avenue and Congress had any vertebrae left, they would impeach him almost instantaneously, right? And then he could be indicted. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I'll say on impeachment, by the way, I wrote about this for a magazine that used to exist in Washington, D.C. Maybe you heard of it, the Weekly Standard, uh, the late, great Weekly Standard. Uh I think the last piece I ever wrote for them um, was about how it was warning that impeachment shouldn't be hyper legalized, and that's actually one of my this sort of this is one of my obs- stump speeches. Yeah, it's one um, of my obsessions too. Yeah, in general, I don't think constitutionalism should be hyper legalized, and imp- the impeachment provision in particular. I mean, it is a political provision. That doesn't mean we're, we're nihilists about this, mm-hmm. right? This is where values really do come into play. But yeah, I think the the, the Congress can and. Boy, I'll take out stick out a really tough position here. If the president started murdering people on any avenue in New York City, I'd be in favor of his impeachment. Yeah. Uh, say what you will about hyper legal realists, at least it's an ethos, right? right. Um, but so my view, expressed many times here, is that Congress can impeach for anything it wants, literally anything it wants. Because first of all, it's not reviewable yeah. except by the Senate, right? I mean, the House can impeach for anything it wants, right? And if, like today, so this. It's because this could be a productive avenue. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, August something or other. And uh, today, I haven't read it yet, but I was hearing the reports on the news about it. The Washington Post has a story that says Trump has told his aides to build the wall as fast as they can in time for Election Day, um, which I think is an important point because it gets to intent. And if they have to seize land illegally or commit other crimes in the process of doing so, he will pardon them for it. Yeah. I think that if that story is true, the White House is denying it, but if that story is true, I think that is certainly impeachable. Yeah. I'm not saying we should impeach him for it. I think I can make I, – I would lean that way, but uh, I think just on the merits, if Congress were a more jealous guardian of its powers and its prerogatives and all the rest and the rule of law and blah, 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 blah. It would say you can't do that. Yeah. First of all, but even if he didn't try to dole out pardons or whatever, Congress can impeach for non-crimes if it wants. Right, right. right. Okay. So is promising pardons A, illegal and B, <laughs> impeachable? Not illegal as far as I know. Um, Why uh, not? <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't know. The president's power to pardon in the Constitution is absolute, right? right. The president alone has the power to pardon. Um, having any other branch government, including sort of a, a federal judge, a federal court, weighing in on the validity of pardons. Yeah. Uh, that just seems a basic separation of powers. Probably. But again, you can only pardon for federal crimes, right? Right, right. Okay. So, and, but I'd say, yeah, def- definitely impeachable. I mean, it was really the, the sort of horrifying thing with, with President Trump's approach to governance is he just says these things. We saw a lot of this in the Mueller report, right, with McGahn, right? Go fire so-and-so. Right. And then McGahn doesn't actually do it. And then the president and his defenders say, well, he never actually 
forced the firing of, of whatever. Um, so, I mean, until the president actually starts pardoning people, there's always going to be this sort of academic debate over whether it's you know just words, is that mm. enough? But I, th- I think that this basic approach to government is, is horrifying. And if there actually was, if Congress was convinced this is something the president was seriously you know, doing mm. or, or, or if it actually was shown that, that he really is telling his, his staff this. But I think that's just fundamentally anti-constitutional approach to government and Congress ought to take it seriously with the impeachment power. And so what is your theory about why we have turned the impeachment process into such a legalistic enterprise? Well, I think because we've turned everything about constitutional law into a legalistic enterprise. It's like at some point in the 20th century, um, the courts basically said, you know, the Constitution, this is our stuff. And the rest of government, American people, said, well, that sounds good to us. Yeah. Right? The, the, the court, it's funny, we all get horrified when you see the line, I think it's from Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, the Constitution is whatever we, the court, say it is. Mm. And that's sort of horrifying to hear, but it's actually basically how we've governed ourselves. Um, we seem satisfied to commit the Constitution, its meaning, its enforcement to the experts at the Supreme Court so that we can worry about other things. And that's that's a that's a really uh, terrible um, mm. development, um, but it's where we are. And for impeachment, I think it's just the same case. I think we're, we we sort of take comfort in committing this stuff to the lawyers um, in a very legalistic way. Um, in some ways, when you know, when House managers, we saw this in the, the Clinton years, we saw it in the Nixon years. Although I guess I didn't see it in the Nixon years, and we see it now. There's this instinct to try to turn impeachment into an indictment, a very formalistic, legalistic mm-hmm. document instead of a legislative document. Mm-hmm. I guess we do it to make it sound more professional, more serious, more authoritative. Um, I just think it's the wrong way to think about these things. Yeah. I mean, people heard me rant on here a bunch of times about how I thought George W. Bush committed an impeachable offense when he said that he thought parts of the McCain-Feingold thing were unconstitutional, but he was signing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying he should have been impeached for it, right. but... It, but he takes an oath to uphold the, the Constitution of the United States, and then he says he's signing an unconstitutional law. Yeah. That's a problem, you know. And the same thing with Obama saying he didn't have the constitutional authority to do DACA and the other stuff, and then he does it. But by his own standard, he's violating his constitutional authority, and that strikes me as, like, impeachable stuff. But Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's kind of like that line from, from Office Space, like, what is it that you think you do around here? Right. And we see that in some ways with the presidency where modern presidents just – I mean, sometimes they assert their view of the Constitution very strongly, and sometimes they just say, oh, boy, this is for the courts to take care of. Right. We see in Congress, this is something I was riffing on a, a couple of, I guess, a month ago in, in commentary. You look at what Congress does right now, right? It's sort of ombudsman for the administrative state. It's sort of a, a sort of an investigative body. They keep talking about oversight power, right? They want to keep investigating. They want to deputize Mueller and the Justice Department into being their, their investigators. You want to ask Congress, well, what is it that you think you do around here? I mean, if you want to be an investigator, well, then leave office and go join the FBI or a U.S. attorney's office or something. Uh, if you want to be in charge of the administrative state, well, then run for president or go run an, an agency. Now, I'm overstating a little bit. Of course, Congress has oversight powers. Of course, Congress should care about these things. But more and more, it just seems like people uh, go to Congress to be sort of, you know, a, a 
I said ombudsman yeah. government instead of actually being the government. Yeah, I call them a parliament of pundits because all they want to do is opine on stuff rather than actually do the things they're supposed to do. Yeah, sometimes we, we point back to Madison where he said, you know, ambition will counteract ambition. And we say, boy, members of Congress aren't ambitious anymore. Well, no, they're very ambitious. They're ambitious to get on Fox and Friends and Morning right. Joe and, and so on. Okay, so in the time we have left, because there's some various and sundry stuff I got to do with Jack. Um, so one of your major thingamabobs, you know, the thing you sometimes zone out crafting giant sculptures of it and mashed potatoes at your dinner table is the administrative state stuff. Yeah. And you know vastly more about it than I do, but I'm kind of obsessed with it, or I was when I was writing my book, and I'm sort of fascinated with it. Yeah. Uh, what is it? So Philip Hamburger, great name. You wrote a book asking, is is administrative law unlawful? Right, and it's a rhetorical question. Right. Yeah. What is your answer to that rhetorical question? Uh, and you can get to it. I mean, explain a little bit to listeners what it is and all that kind of stuff. I got to open a beer. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so um, the administ- where do you want me to start? Administrative state, administrative law? Administrative state. What yeah. is it? How did we get here? Sure. So when I say administrative state, and this is something I'm stealing just shamelessly from Matt Spaulding of Hillsdale, who's uh-huh. really great on this. Uh, he always says there's two ways to think of the administrative state. One is just the sum total of agencies, right? You go to the top of the AEI building, you look across town, and all those buildings are the administrative state. Or the better and deeper way to think about it is the administrative state is a mindset and approach to governance. It's a state that is first and foremost administrative. That's where the law comes from more than anything else. And I suppose that's where we are. I, I run a program at George Mason's Law School called the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Um, not the center for the administrative state, not the center for the deconstruction of the administrative state, just the center for to study the administrative state. And um, I wouldn't – I don't go full hamburger mm-hmm. on this. Uh, his view is that uh, it's inherently unconstitutional for agencies to have policies that, that, that bind people. Mm-hmm. Um, he says only courts and legislatures can do that. Um, his view is that, as I understand it, is that most of what we see today in modern administration is unconstitutional mm. um, and that courts should uh, should strike it down um, or declare it sort of null and void. And that would be judicial engagement, getting back to where we began, right? That would that would be a very engaged judiciary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My view of it is... Some say engaged, some say heroic, but hey, go on. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, or, or our colleague Peter Wallace, and his, he uh-huh. writes on this too. His book is called Judicial Fortitude. Right. Um, and he, he's, there's, I think... I wouldn't equate him with Hamburger. I think they both have sort of their own in- interesting nuances. Um, I, you know, I look at this and I say, what's the first thing that Congress did, the very first Congress, right? Well, first it, pa- it passed taxes. Mm. But then it started building a government, mm. right? You actually need agencies to administer or departments to administer laws. James Madison in another great Federalist Paper 37 said – in Federalist 37 said there's, laws are always going to be to some extent vague, right? More or less vague. Why? Because – we're dealing with complex subjects. We are fallible people talking to other fallible people using an imperfect language. Um, so laws are always going to be vague. There's always going to be some sort of discretion left to the people administering the laws. And as a practical matter, um, that's going to be a form of lawmaking. Um, and I'm not really horrified by that. Um, I do think that it's dangerous for Congress to just give away so much power. I think in some ways it not only superpowers the agencies, it also in a way renders Congress itself crippled going forward. We can get into that later if you want to, but it's one of my, my sort of hobby horses. But I'd say we also should worry a lot about government structure and the way that agencies are accountable to the president, Congress, and the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and accountable to all three parts, not just accountable to the courts or just accountable to the president or just accountable to Congress. 
Um, I'd say that our administrative state today is 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 much too bloated. It's wielding too much power in ways that are too unaccountable. Um, but I'm I'm definitely I'm I'm not of the burn it down caucus. I'm mm-hmm. of the mend it don't end it caucus. Um, Hamburger helper. That's good. That's good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. He once said to me, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess. It, I mean, I don't know if he listens to this podcast. I hope it doesn't bother him that I tell this story. He once said to me, Adam, it must be very convenient to have me out there because you can just agree with 60% of what I say and then you sound very reasonable. <laughs> and I said, yes, it is very helpful. Um, but I also think that I think that his, where he's coming from is correct. I think he's, he's identifying the problems. I think he's putting way too much um, emphasis – and this is, this is true of, of, of the judicial engagement folks too – putting way too much emphasis on the courts to fix everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and some some things we have to fix ourselves. Yeah, I mean that's. I think that's a fair criticism. You know, Charles Murray had in this book, you know, by the people, which yeah. was also very sort of like the courts will save us as well. Yeah, I, I worked with him on that book a little bit when he was getting started, actually, uh-huh. and we did a Federal Society podcast or teleform on the book, and kind of like Hamburger when he introduced it, he said, "Now, don't worry, um, Adam is not responsible for all the really interesting parts of this book." <laughs> Um, so, um, I mean, the reason why I, not being a lawyer, because I wanted to be able to continue to see my reflection in mirrors, so the why, I don't know. And, um, uh, but my, the reason why I think the administrative state is really interesting stuff, or at least the way Hamburger does it, is, um, and again, this is an old theme on this podcast, I'm obsessed with ways that, that, natural forms of human organization reassert themselves in different times and different places. Mm-hmm. And the example I always use in speeches is North Korea where they basically, you know, they got rid of Marxist doctrine, Stalinist doctrine years ago. We can't find any of those buzz terms in their official documents anymore. And what they've basically done is reinvent a more familiar form of social organization, which is, is monarchy, right? Or the divine right of Kim's is what they've got. That's good. And um, part of what I really liked about the hamburger book was how the way the administrative state sort of asserts itself, it is very much way the Chinese bureaucracy in, you know, the, the fourth century would. It's where it's a very public choice kind of argument in the sense that anytime you have what the, is sort of the guild mentality assert itself where people start protecting their own institutional interests and arrangements – um, ahead of what their actual mandate does uh, or what their mandate is, um, you start getting mandarins in yeah. effect. And um, this idea, I mean, it's seductive and you can get a, you can get all sorts of tinfoil hatty about it. But this idea that there is a group of – and it fits so much with the Joseph Schumpeter new class stuff, which I love. And Me too. Um, you have this group of people – who are subject to a different rule of law than the rest of us. And that, that point, Charles hits home really strong in, in his book. And I, I think that that, that is something that, sh- you know, in an earlier age, that is the kind of thing that would have freaked out Americans. You know, this idea that there's this sort of aristocratic class in terms of, I'm not saying that they're all drinking out of slippers or any of that kind of stuff, but that they have powers and uh, prerogatives that normal people do not have. And that they're, their accountability to the rule of law is different than the rest of us. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I definitely think that's right. I, what I would say, and I'm not, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you here, but 
you know, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, right? The, the the people that first staffed up, I mean, not Madison, but Hamilton and Jefferson, those who staffed up the first administration, right? These were great men. Mm-hmm. These were these were elites. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Constitution itself was written in a dark, smoke-filled room, right? right? Um, precisely because they thought it was the only way you could have this sort of, you know, um, compromised document, but also in many ways sort of a radical document put together and then presented to the people for an up or down vote. Um, we've, and I, let me make sort of a related point, but but different. You look at the back half of the Declaration of Independence. One of the things that people complained about in 1776, uh, once you get past all the the, the the sort of great opening lines, they're complaining about the lack of government in America. Mm. That King George not only you know enacted the wrong law, not only imposed the wrong laws, but he refused to allow good government to mm. rise up um, among the people. The reason why we have the Constitution is because the Articles of Confederation itself was a failure. It wasn't sufficiently energetic government. Madison had- It also didn't give us a navy, which we needed. Right. Damn pirates. Well, right. And, and, and I mean, we need a great military so we can have parades. Yeah, right. absolutely. And so, but 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 we, we as Madison was understood, we needed both energetic, we, we needed restrained government, but also energetic government. Energetic government is going to require- some sort of administrative apparatus because the president can't enforce all these laws himself. So you need something like the State Department, the Justice Department, Treasury, tax collectors, and so on. Um, That's inherently going to create this body of experts, this body of elites who are closer to power than the people themselves. So it's a matter of striking balances. And like I said, we're totally out of balance now. But one thing that does worry me is, I mean, it's the sort of the rhetoric of deconstruct the administrative state. It's silly. It's never going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Um, Bannon got deconstructed by the administrative state mm-hmm. faster than he could deconstruct it. But I think what we need to worry about is less tearing stuff down and more how do we build um, – now I'm stealing from our colleague Yuval uh, – how do we build institutions, right, the right institutions to counteract these problems in government? And that it's in itself going to require some form of elites, people in power who are closer to power than the people themselves. But I don't think what we can do is just sort of, you know, wave our hand back and forth and say, um, boy, all of modern administration is just like the star chamber. It needs to go away. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I, I know that's that. not what yeah, you're yeah. saying. But, yeah, but I mean, you just look at how administrative law court proceedings just don't seem kosher to me. Right, right. And it's, you know, in, I teach administrative law. I spend a lot of time around administrative law professors and practitioners. And I'd say most of the scholars who write about these things, they have a much easier time identifying with the people in power. Uh-huh. Rather than the people being governed, yeah, um, and I think that's that's that that that's that's inherent in all this. Something we need to really guard against. Um, so, I, but I'm not against administration. I'm for administration. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, what was it? Hamilton said the best quality of constitutional government is good administration. Right. Um, that's true. It's not. It's not the absence of administration. All right. So we got to wrap up. Right. Um, so far, I would reluctantly conclude that I would hire you. Oh, so you. if you could. In the realm of the doable, yeah. right? Uh, if you could pass one law, make one regulatory change, make one serious public policy improvement that you think would fix a lot of these issues, mm-hmm. in the realm of the, it could take a little while to do. Like ex- expanding in the House of Representatives would count, which is one of my obsessions. Yeah, but whatever it is, what would be your thing or a couple things that you think would actually put us back on a better path? Sure. I mean, the, since it's, we're at AEI, let me start with one sort of wonky thing. 
Um, this is very small, but it's important. I think all agencies should be required to go back every five years, ten years, and reanalyze their old regulations. Mm-hmm. Not to get rid of old ones. I, that's that's what people usually talk about. We need to get rid of the old ones. No, what we need to do is agencies need to be for, need to be confronted with their past errors, projections that were just re- preposterous, and so on, to hopefully create more transparency and make them more modest going forward. So one small thing, but I think important thing, is agencies need to be forced to go back and look at their old mistakes mm. um, and admit that they make mistakes. Second, we need major civil service reform. Um, I don't know quite what that looks like yet, but I think we need to do more in terms of um, term limiting people in civil service, mm-hmm. um, rotating them among agencies. Um, but the big picture stuff, um, I'd say one is we need a massive overhaul of the appropriations process in Congress. Um, one, that makes sure that agencies aren't independently funded and that the agencies are actually accountable to Congress um, through the power of the purse. Um, and I'd say agencies need to be um, – they need they should jump through more hoops before passing rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to create the incentives for them to want to jump through those hoops. So that's pretty wonky stuff. But I mean – No, that's fine. Enterprise Institute, so we're – well, I, I do want to say one thing. Can I say something about – since you've now, I guess, agreed not to have me fired on the next – you know, a few days or at least. Yeah, that's the sense I got from this. Sure, sure. You know, I, I teach administrative law. I run a program on it at George Mason. I write on it. I think again, though, one of the important things it's one of the reasons I'm so happy to be at AEI. It's part of AEI's, you know, some of the best parts of its legacy, is that they've had thinkers in the past like Antonin Scalia, Bork, Silberman, Martin, um, um, uh, Irving Kristol, and people around it like Martin Diamond, who thought through these issues of of, of government structure. And American constitutionalism, not just in terms of the policies, mm-hmm. but in, like I said, in terms of of the values and themes that are under that undergird all of this. Um, and I think that's important, even among conservative law professors. There's a, a habit, I guess, for all law professors to get really tied up in legal doctrines and so mm-hmm. on. And the doctrines are important, but the doctrines are what come at the end of a much longer conversation. Right. And I think um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be here is to to try to carry on that in the spirit of people like Scalia and Walter Burns and mm-hmm. Martin Diamond and others. Um, oh, I, 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 this is cheating. I said we were ending and all this kind of stuff. But you brought up Walter Burns, who um, I used to work alongside here at AEI in my first incarnation here. And um, you've been reincarnated, uh, sort of. Yeah. Um, uh, in the great Burns-Jaffa-Bork Wars, yeah. where many lives were lost, <laughs> um, uh, many villages were burned, yeah. where do you come down on all of that? Uh, well, Burns, uh-huh. um, not just because he was a great thinker and a great Iowan, um, I think he was right. But the thing about Jaffa is Jaffa's first great book, The Crisis of the House Divided, is one of the two or three greatest books of all American constitutionalism. Uh-huh. And his view of how constitutional meaning is ascertained and vindicated, right, through the felt experience of the country, um, that is great. I'm with that version of Jaffa. Now, uh-huh. Jaffa changed his views in many ways, and his follow-up book decades later, New Birth of Freedom, is very different in yeah. some ways. It's much more strident, sort of libertarian um, but for me, Jaffa's The Crisis of the House Divided is really one of the great books, and it became a core influence of another one of the great books, which is Alex Bickle's um, The Least Dangerous Branch. Mm-hmm. So I love to point students, law students, and, and people back to the original Jaffa. But in that 1980s fight, um, the sort of war of all against all, um, I'm definitely with, with, with Burns and Bork over that version of Jaffa. Um, 
We'll put in the show notes some links to the rich and textured nature of that fight. Um, William F. Buckley famously said that um, if you think it's difficult disagreeing with Jaffa, try agreeing with them. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Anyway, uh, Adam, delighted to have you. Thanks, John. All right, so uh, Adam White has left the building, and uh, I'm here with uh, Jack Butler, host of the Young Americans podcast. Is that still going on? Yeah. Yeah? How's that doing? Well, I just recorded an episode that's going to be released later this week in which uh, Dune is referenced extensively. I'm just really embracing that part of my public personality. So at some point... Uh Uh-oh. When you say referenced, at some point, doesn't referenced... Disgust. Become mean disgust, right? I mean, like, we, yeah, yeah, we didn't disgust. reference the Constitution in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, it wasn't like a full blown, uh, discussion. I have podcasts in which I've done that. Uh, but it was, it was more than a reference, not quite a, not quite a book club meeting. Uh-huh. But it came up because I found this guy about my age who specializes in tech policy, who happens to be a Dune nerd. So, oh, okay. So we, we discussed that. Do you have the Dune Encyclopedia? No, I have. I should have told you I have it because it's. I think I. I think I saw it at your house. Yeah. Um, problem is that the books continued well beyond when it was written, and so it's not current. I mean, I'm sure there's an. I'm sure someone has reissued. I would assume someone has reissued one. Yeah. But um, so you listened to the. Yeah, you had to have because you put it together. Uh, the Neil Ferguson podcast. Yes. Which people liked a lot. Uh huh. What did you think of it? Well, so here's the thing. I now I'm like ex- extra paranoid about profanity since I let that one f bomb slip by me. Yep. At one time, and when I listened to Neil Ferguson's profanity, and I was like, man, he does this so elegantly. It's it's kind of a shame that I have to censor this, yeah. um, but I did anyway. But he does everything elegantly. He was. So did you just beep it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I, I beeped it, but it was just so. I listened to it and I was like, man, this doesn't even. It's uh oh someone described um uh John Gilgood's voice as a trumpet muffled in silk. Uh-huh. That's that's how I f- that's how Neil Ferguson cursing sounded to me. Yeah, no, I I I hear you. And saying everything else. No, no, he's he's at some point maybe we'll do a ranking of most euphonious guests. Uh-huh. And he would be pretty high up there. Charles I have to say Charles Murray has a fantastic podcast radio voice. Yeah, he's like a uh, like a '50s '60s newscaster. Yeah, no, it's pretty impressive, and I I, I feel bad bringing him up since we're so close to me having to denou- denounce him before his book comes out. <laughs> but um, and fellow Iowan, another I. I was thinking about this. There, Iowans are friggin' everywhere. I mean, there's a, it, like I just keep running into people who are from Iowa. Do you knock them over? Uh, I, 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 I slap the fried butter out of their hands. Um, so, uh, so I, I, have, I have, I have my disagreements with, uh, with Neil and I just, I liked listening to him and he was so assertive and sort of grabbing the wheel on that podcast that I just let him a couple times, uh-huh. but I just want to get him off my chest. So first of all, uh, I'm grateful to him for, for being on. He didn't have to do it. He was great. He's brilliant. Knows many things. Knows much more about many things than I do. All of that stipulated. He kept rejecting my assertion that the fact that England is an island uh, was significant. And he brings up this point about how, 
you know, until fairly recently, it was easier to move over water than over land, which I take to be absolutely true, and that's not the point. The point is, is that islands are much easier to defend against invading forces. And the argument, which lots of historians have made, uh, our, our friend Daniel Hanan, another great... Iowan. <laughs> not Iowan. <laughs> um, Peruvian, actually. That's right. Uh, he, surve- you know, he sort of surveys a lot of the historical stuff on this in his book about um, how the English gave us liberty, whatever. The, what's the title of it? Uh, how the English-speaking peoples invented liberty? There's a shorter... That's like a subtitle thing of it. But anyway, um, that... You know, the the monarchy in England was always weaker in part because they didn't need standing armies. And when he was saying they had armies... It was just called inventing liberty. That's right, inventing liberty. Um, and the point I was trying to get out was that... I wasn't saying there weren't armies in England. I was saying that, that there was not a central standing army that was answerable solely to the king that had the same sort of power and size and status that you got under, say, the absolutist kings of France or, and whatnot. And that was one of the things, and he's a fan of Douglas North, that was one of the things that allowed for the multiplicity of institutions and competing institutions in England to create space for civil society in ways that you didn't get in other places, at least not at the same rate or scope as you got in England. And um, uh, But he didn't, he just, he wouldn't let me go there to explain it, so I just want to get it out there. Um, I, I screwed up in the very beginning by making this reference to eugenics. I wasn't making a eugenic argument and I kept trying to correct myself, but I couldn't get it in. I was just trying to make the case that you had this weird asymmetric thing in the 16th and 17th century where you had improvements in health and, and, and nutrition and all sorts of things that disproportionately benefited the aristocracy or the nobility, the upper classes, whatever you want to call them, so that more upper class educated, first of all, more upper-class children just simply survived to adulthood than had in previous generations or in previous centuries. And 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 they tended to be disproportionately educated because they came from prosperous backgrounds. And But you had the enduring nature of sort of uh, primogeniture and things like that that made it necessary for these educated, healthy, resourceful people, men mostly, um, that didn't have opportunities in England at precisely the moment the frontier and the new world was opening up. And so that was my point. It wasn't that, you know, we had to put it in Dune terms that, that the English created this Sardaukar or however you pronounce it. Sardaukar? Sardaukar? Uh, in the movie, the, the Padishah emperor says, uh, you will have 10 legions of my Sardaukar terror troops. Okay. So the Sardaukar is like these, the equivalent of like SS super eugenically, uh, uh, formed shock troops or whatever. No match for the Fremen, though. That's right. Um, and I wasn't trying to make a, a strictly eugenic argument. I was just trying to make this point, that, but there was this weird discrepancy or distortion in how uh, you had these more uh, resourceful, educated people who these second sons who had to go off to places like Virginia to make their fortune because they weren't going to inherit the lands or the estate in, um, at home. And that made them more ambitious and all the rest. Anyway, I just want to get that out there. Yeah, this is, this is an argument that McCloskey considers, but ultimately finds wanting in one of, one of her, the, the volumes of her bourgeois trilogy, the yeah. Greg Clark argument, which Neil, that he, he explained that for yeah. you, um, uh, or helped like brought that up. 
to make you seem like <laughs> less of a eugenicist. Right, right. Oh, uh, which was and, helpful. Yeah, no, which wasn't – I just grabbed the wrong word. And right, right. I terrified him because we were on a college campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I, and again, I don't I, – I in no way think it is like the primary explanation of anything. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm very much with Ferguson on this is that contingency is hugely important, which brings me to another point. He kind of lumped me in with Ben Shapiro in like my argument about uh, suicide of the West and his argument about you know the was it right side of history. Uh huh. But my whole argument in the book, which I don't blame Neil for not reading, I haven't read all of Neil's books, um, is it demotes intellect the importance of ideas to a certain extent and how we got to the critical mass that created liberal democratic capitalism um, and that there was a lot of accident and contingency involved and that we stumbled into this thing by accident and the ideas that emerged sort of accidentally uh, when I say accidentally I mean in an unplanned Hayekian emergent way um, uh, had less to do with sort of doctrine and political philosophy than they had to do with just the um, with good luck with providence in one sense or another and then but that doesn't mean that those ideas aren't important. It just means we stumbled into those ideas that, and that we discovered these ideas. And once we discovered them, they became hugely important. Um, anyway, I want to get that out there. But. You you should – this will be imp- probably impossible to arrange, but I would love to hear it anyway. A three-way conversation on this topic between all of our British-accented guests. That would be fun. Charles Cook, Daniel Hanan, and um, and Neil Ferguson. Yeah, it would be essentially one and a half wigs against Neil, right? I mean, Charlie isn't as wiggish as as Daniel is, but um, they're both sort of on that side of things, I think. Um, but um, we could also just have you know the who has the coolest accent contest. I think Charlie might win that. Yeah, because he's got the posh thing down. Although yeah. Daniel's is pretty posh too. Yeah, but it's posh from a distance in a way that 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 Charles is, isn't. You know, because again, Peruvian. Right. Um, um, who knows? We can maybe have people vote on that now that they've all now that all those episodes have been released. Um, it was the best accent. I'll make a twi- uh, or excuse me, the remnant robot will make a Twitter poll about it. I think that's an excellent idea. Um, okay, so other things going on. A lot of stuff going on professionally and personally for me these days, so uh, I apologize if from time to time we're distracted or the schedule breaks up. But Look, a squirrel. <laughs> but we're planning on um, more and more and greater ambitious things for this podcast. And um, hey, did we get many submissions on the uh, half-baked ideas thing? Too many. Really? <laughs> there are a lot. Okay. So we're planning, we're in the process of working out logistics to have uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher back on the program, back on the show, and we're going to have a whole episode dedicated just to half-baked ideas. And these ideas, they can't be just truly crazy, right? They can't be like, we should do what they did in Logan's Run and take everybody over the age of 35 and swing them around the ceiling of a stadium and blow them up, right? That's not what we're talking about. That's a different podcast that we'll do. Uh, this is like ideas that have a lot of potential, but they just need the, either they need the Overton window to move them to make them seem uncrazy, like the Greenland thing, mm-hmm. um, or they just need a lot more sort of spade work in terms of making them less crazy sounding. So I know we've 
there are problems with nuking hurricanes. Uh-huh. Uh, but what about... There are problems, yes. Yeah, but I, I was thinking about this the other day. What about nuking, or not not even nuking, but like creating a countervailing uh, explosive force to thwart tsunamis? Like what if we created an... What if we like... They're hard to predict, which is the problem. But if right. we knew one was coming, what if we just had massive ordnance like right at the right at the shore and just blew it back into the ocean? Yeah, I I don't know. Is this a half baked idea? It might be. It might be. It's just like if you read the stuff about uh, why nuking hurricanes, right? Imagine you could get the radiation out of a nuclear bomb. Like, so just we'll use Moab then. Right. Well, like. It is a rounding error in terms of the kinetic force of what's in a hurricane. It's just like it, it means nothing. Uh-huh. And I don't know if the same ratios apply to um, tsunamis. Um, but uh, I'm open to it. You know, like I want to lance volcanoes. I am like I am more scared of the caldera in the super volcano underneath Wyoming than I am of climate change or a bunch of other things. We're due for that thing to blow. And that won't destroy all life on planet Earth. But it'll destroy pretty much all the life in North America, which I care about it quite a bit. Is will it destroy all life? I think it'll make it'll make life pretty hard for most people. But I and it'll kill most people in like the Western United States. Yeah, I don't. The, I don't. The giant ashen cloud will be a problem because it's going to last a couple of years at least. And yeah, but it won't instantly kill people. Like on the East Coast, we will not be instantly killed by it. No, we'll suffer. The en- the living will envy the dead. Right. That's right. Like we'll have no food. <laughs> blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, on that true note, uh, if you that it doesn't have to be about thwarting supernatural disasters or anything like that. Supernatural. I mean, large natural. disasters. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, we, we, well, yeah, that, supernatural that, disasters are very different. That's true. Um, Fortunately, we have the Sorcerer Supreme protecting us from those. Um, or if you have, you know, I mean, one of one of uh, Mike Gallagher's half baked ideas was to uh, have some corporation sponsor a sort of physical fitness kind of thing, where you put in uh, pull up bars in airport waiting lounges, uh, where people could get exercise, or maybe even you have contests where, like, you could. Get a better seat if you did X number of pull-ups to encourage physical fitness. That's doable. It's a little weird. It's half-baked, right? Uh-huh. So we're looking for more and more nominations for half-baked ideas. Please send your suggestions to uh, theremnantpod at gmail.com uh-huh. and include your whether or not you want your name read on the program or not. We can't probably get to everybody's, but um, I think this is a fun, fun idea. Um or maybe just a half-baked one. It's a half-baked podcast about half-baked ideas. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, lots of big announcements to come. And uh, I guess we, we never really talked about the conclusion of my summer road trip stuff in part because it ended. Or the conclusion of my peonage. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how? So give me the, the, the highlights of, of uh, your uh, stay at, at Shea Goldberg. I mean, it was... I, I felt like I skipped the uh, the uncertain part of my life where I was trying to figure establish myself in the world and just went straight to like, oh, now I'm set. I have a house and a car. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, – I, I know you're not you, – you're mad at Lost uh, for the way it ended. But there's there's a great – I think the best comparison to how the experience of managing all your pets was for me was um, – the life that Desmond had, that we that that it opens season two, where he 
has to plug in the numbers every eight hours or whatever. One hundred eight minutes. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt. Like I could I could leave your house and whatnot, but I always had to be back. Uh-huh. Got to take care of those those pets. Uh-huh. Um, but they were they're good they're good animals. Yeah. Uh, even Ralph, as I as I alluded to, is start uh, is warmed up to me a little bit. Uh, and yeah, they and. Pippa is very needy. Zoe is needy in a in a less restrained, but sometimes even less subtle way. Uh-huh. Like that she she's more likely to, if you're in the middle of petting her, to and, and stop to paw, start pawing at you. Yeah, which is such a like. I think animals are at their funniest when they are just short of rational, uh-huh. and that is a totally recognizable. It's like a pseudo human thing to do to be like, hey, hey, keep petting me. Yeah. No, she'll do that. Like she gets, on, she'll sit on that ottoman in the kitchen area, you know. Uh-huh. And I'll pet her, and then I'll turn my back to do something at the kitchen counter, and she'll jump up and start scratching my back, saying, "Am I chopped liver? Why you turn your back on me?" <laughs> <laughs> um, Pippa's truly obsessed with tennis balls, but also weirdly absent-minded about them. Yes, um, which is why we, you, your stock of them almost ran out while I was uh, while I was taking care of them. And Gracie's a good cat, and yeah, that's I. That's I bathed Pippa twice. Uh huh. Outside with the hose thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, she needed it. Yeah. Um, didn't do it to Zoe because I. She wasn't. She didn't get as. She didn't go swimming as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, yeah, and I kept them all alive, which is the most important thing. That is, is crucially important. Uh, that was my concern: is that some t- something terrible is going to go wrong, and I was going to be. His Twitter's uh, monster of the day for for letting something bad happen to one of your animals. Yeah, I mean, no, look, I mean, if 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 you killed Pippa or Zoe, like I know, I forget what the reaction from the Goldbergs would be. I mean, that would be the first line in your obit. <laughs> it would. I would have to go off the grid. Finally, I would have my excuse. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I, I enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad I'm back. <laughs> yeah, I'm thankful that you trusted me with it. I'm glad that no one, uh, no Antifa mob came to your house while I was there. Yeah. Didn't get a chance to once upon a time in Hollywood them away. So did they sleep with you every night? Uh, no, I they 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 had a different routine in response to me. But they, they also, I sh- they, they figured out what my routine was. Uh-huh. Um, they, like, started realizing... When I was putting on my running shoes, they they would start moping in the way that they would when you would start packing. So right. they like figured out the things about me that they would respond to, right? Which was f- interesting. They're smart. I mean, they are smart animals, but only in the things that they care about. That's right. They can be kind of dumb. Pippa can be kind of dumb sometimes. Yes, she can. Um, Particularly when like long division, it's just completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, who can blame her? She, you know, she, uh, she, who? She never made it to calculus either. Uh, well, thank you again for doing that, and um, and thanks to everybody for your patience and tolerance. Oh, and also thank you for sub for guest hosting with uh, Jim Garrity. Oh right, yeah, I did that. I hear it went well. I still haven't listened to it. I've never listened to a whole episode of this podcast. Is that's not true? You listened to you listened to one because you you said that it was one where I had to splice in an ad, and you didn't know where it was going to be, and you were shocked. Your wife didn't believe you that it was spliced in. Uh, yeah, okay. That was when my I was again. I said I had never listened to a whole episode. Yeah, my wife was listening 
in the car and she was giving me a lift somewhere and I didn't make her turn it off. Oh, okay. And we were at that point because, yeah, I I never watch myself on TV. I can't stand listening to myself on these things. And, um, um, and I, you know, and, 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 and I've never once watched any of my dance routines. <laughs> so, well, that's just weird. That How else weird. do you improve? That's, I, I agree. It's, it's a setback. Um, You'll never be on Dancing with the Stars now. Um, do you have nothing to say about the remainder of your travels? Oh, well. You I'll, can't. You don't have to. So what to say? Um, you were in Iowa the last time people heard about what you were. No, well, you, people, you were broadcasting from Stanford, but you gave no explanation as to why you were there, how you got there. Yeah. said nothing about your travels during that episode. Yeah. Um, I didn't think that I should do that in front of Neil Ferguson. Um, so I was in Jackson Hole for a family vacation thing. Uh, before that, I was at the Iowa State Fair, which I talked about in the Glop Potthorts crossover episode a little bit. What to talk about? The... It was a lot of driving. So we basically drove a route that if you put it on a map, a reasonable person would suspect that we were driving to stay one step ahead of the authorities, <laughs> not with like any like major, like, you know, like, like rational approach. We went from DC to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to Maine, to Montreal. Toronto, came back down through Michigan, went to Chicago for a night, then Iowa, Des Moines for the Iowa State Fair, Iowa to Nebraska, Nebraska to Jackson. And, um, man, I wish that this were, this had a video element to it because that would have been a great time for a Indiana Jones style, like plain, right, red, red line map scene. Going across the map thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I've lost count how many times we've done this, these kinds of drives. We now, I mean, it's weird. It's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, on a video game when the, in the beginning or in the movies that are based on video games in the beginning, like the orcs are really hard to kill. And then by the end, you know, you level up and the, the initial problems seem so much smaller because you have new villains to conquer or that kind of thing. Yeah. And, there was a time when we thought it was wildly ambitious and that we were like road warriors to try to do Chicago to DC in a day. Uh-huh. And now we just think it's like, oh, it's yeah, it's, that's easy. You know, and that's, uh, that's like 12 to 14 hours? No. 12 hours? It's it's 7 to 800 miles. Oh. And so you can do it in 12 hours. Yeah. 12 hours, okay. And you know, there's certain things that we've sort of gotten down to a science. One piece of advice is if you're, particularly if you're driving cross country with a baby, um, which we're not anymore, wake up crazy early and leave at like 4 a.m., like be on the road at 4 a.m. Baby will keep sleeping. You can put on 300 miles before basically the kid wakes up. You grab breakfast and then by like 9, 10 a.m., you've broken the back of the drive. And so you can do another few hundred miles for lunch and then you can still get to wherever you're going with some time left to have a cocktail. I mean, I remember the first or second time we drove to Chicago, um, my daughter was still in a stroller and we got to the hotel by five in downtown Chicago. And clutch. And we took one of her sippy cups and filled it with ice and and Jameson's Irish whiskey and pushed her around in downtown Chicago and drank out of her out of a sippy cup uh which was just a weird look but no one knew that I had booze in it and um 
Uh, so anyway, I'm that's that's such a. I'm just glad that you were that you were this, you're doing this as a member of a nuclear family and not just like some guy walking around with a like car car seat foam around him. Yeah, well, I mean, walking solo with a the, the booze sippy cup is probably a bad idea. Yeah, uh, bad look. Um, and then I had this family thing that I had to deal with. Uh, looks like things are on the mend there. Uh, knock on wood, but it was quite harrowing. I I left I left Jackson Hole at I was supposed to leave on a seven a.m. flight out of Jackson Hole Airport, and uh, my friend Nick Schultz was supposed to drive me and and my friend Toby. Uh, to the airport, and Nick overslept, and so we ended up going on a later shuttle bus, and long, long story short, flights were... I've never seen O'Hare Airport angrier, because (laughs) there was supposed to be an air show, so they had narrowed all of the... They had narrowed way down the number of flights that are going to be allowed into the airspace to begin with, and then they had some crazy weather that grounded everything that went in there, and so... When I was supposed to land in Chicago at 11.30 in the morning, um, didn't land until like 12.30 or 1, and then everything was canceled. The customer service line was like a refugee camp line for like bottled water. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. Um, but we can skip over all of that. And um, anyway, it was, you know, it was a great time when, she, when we did all sorts of fun stuff with my daughter, various rides and fairs and all of that. And... I don't. I, I thought I had all these lessons from my trip, but I can't remember what they were, or they're, or they're off the record. Um, but uh, you were stopped by the police in a South American country. Ask if you can pay the fine here. That's right. Well, that's for those who don't know. That was my father. One of my father's key pieces of advice to me when I was six years old. I talk about it in my eulogy to him, where he would we would be walking down the street and. I'd be holding his hand because I wasn't allowed to cross the street without holding his hand. You know, I was five or six years old in New York. And he would stop dead in the middle of the block and say, Jonah, if you're ever pulled over by the police in a South American country, say, I'm terribly sorry, officer. I didn't know. Is there any way I could pay the fine right here? Because the one thing you don't want to do is make it down to the station. It'd be taken to the station house. You'll never get out. And I'm like, okay, daddy. <laughs> um, so... uh uh, all right, so that's all I got. Thanks to everybody. Uh, more announcements to come. Please keep, you know, word of mouth is more important than reviews on iTunes and all that kind of stuff, but the reviews on iTunes don't hurt, particularly when they're positive ones. Same thing at all the other places where podcasts are acquired. And thanks to everybody for hanging in there to the extent anybody has. Um, and hopefully things will not only get to normal, but they get to normal plus in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks to Jack for um, uh, being the broom behind the elephant on so many of these things these days. And uh, thanks to all the support from listeners. Uh, You guys matter a huge amount. And um, you'll be hearing more about the exciting things to come shortly. Until then, I'll see you next time. Go on this podcast.
Why did you just draw two lines on that paper? I can't answer that question. I do that. That's how I like in my, when I'm actually taking notes. Uh huh. It means break between the, the next thing that follows has nothing to do with what's behind it. Oh, okay. But I just sometimes do it absentmindedly. So. Absinthe-mindedly. Absinthe-mindedly. Sometimes I do things very absinthe-mindedly. <laughs> um, all right, were you recording? Uh huh.